Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. The older I get, the more value I see in the wisdom of people who are older than me. When I talk to someone who's been through some life and they've been through some experience and, and they've they got a lot more years than, than I do, um, I, I, I love hearing from them. People who have been married longer, who have been in my career longer, people who've just got some more life in their, uh, years in their, on their life, they, they, they tell me stuff. And, and, and a lot of times I'll ask, ask them, and, and, and a lot of, uh, some of the best advice I hear from people who are older than me generally is this. They'll say, don't freak out about it. Like, whatever it is, don't freak out about it. It's just not going to be that big of a deal, which I find to be very comforting in times of a pandemic or a hurricane or an economic downturn or pain or, like, suffering. In, in, in the midst of all of that, when I can go to someone who's older and they're like, yeah, I've seen it all before. It's going to be okay. You're going to regret stressing out so much, so just don't do that. Like, calm down. I find that to be pretty comforting. Um, but the truth is, even as we get older, we have things that we regret, right? Like, I, I saw a study recently, and, and they went and they interviewed people who were, like, you know, close to 90 years old, and they asked them, what are your biggest regrets in life? And, uh, and, and, and they had some really good stuff there, and there's actually eight of them. I want to put them up on the screen. So this is eight, the top eight regrets of people as they're nearing the end of their life. This is what they said. Number one, not being careful enough in choosing a life partner. That's a big deal, right? And so they regretted that, the choice that they had made. Number two, not resolving a family estrangement. I've heard stories of this, of people, hey, I didn't talk to my brother for 20 years until a f- dad's funeral, then we talked, you know, that kind of thing. Um, people regret putting off saying how you feel. Uh, put it off saying how you feel. Um, people also regret not traveling enough. It's kind of interesting, but that's a, a regret, right? Um, people uh, near the end of life say they regret spending too much time worrying. How many of you are worried now that you spend too much time worrying? How many? How many? I'm just giving you a list of things to worry about of regrets you're going to have one day. Like this one's a little self-defeating. It's kind of weird. Um, people regret uh, not being honest enough. Probably goes along with not saying how you feel, right? Uh, people regret not taking enough career chances. There's some regret there. Uh, and then people, finally, they say they regret not taking care of your body. Of course, you know, you can't take care of it so well that you'll never die, like you're going to die, but there's a difference in quality of life when you take care of it, right? These are regrets people have. That, and, and I guess another way of saying regrets is, is to say it this way. These are things that people, when they get to the end of the life, they go, man, it wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it to uh, spend all this time, money, and energy, which is what you have in life. You have time, money, and energy. It wasn't worth it spending the time, money, and energy on that degree. It wasn't worth it spending time, money, and energy on that fight, on that relationship, on that education, on that thing. Like, whatever the thing was I was pursuing, it wasn't necessarily worth it. And so it occurs to me that if we are going to have less regrets as we get older, it would be helpful if we would ask the question throughout life of ourselves from time to time, if we would just pose the question of four simple words, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth spending time on that? Is it worth buying that because will it really have the value for me? Is it worth pursuing that relationship because is, is it really going to be valuable to, to do that? Is it 
worth it? I, I think if we would ask that question over and over and constantly sort of check in on ourselves, we would have, end up having fewer regret, regrets. So today I want to talk about that question. Is it worth it or was it worth it? And I want to aim even higher than your career or your health or finances or any of that kind of stuff. I want to ask that question about your entire life, big picture. The way we live and the way it's going to end up, um, is it worth it? Is it worth it the way for us to continue on the path that we're on um, as, as we evaluate the whole thing? Is it worth living the way, the way we live. And, and to get there, I want to take what will seem like a detour, but I want to first talk about um, the resurrection of Jesus and the true story of Easter. Easter in our country gets a little bit, like Christmas, it sort of gets culturally diluted. And, and, and we end up talking about Easter, and it becomes something about a bunny and chocolate and eggs and peeps. I don't know, I don't know when peeps made it into the world, but they're here, and they're not going away um, they last forever, probably in your intestines. Uh, so there's peeps, and there's like um, that stuff that goes in, ba- well, for some reason we do baskets at Easter, and there's that stuff that goes in the baskets. It's like AstroTurf, but it's like EastroTurf or something like that. I don't know. Like, this is what Easter has become in America. And for a lot of people today, they will celebrate Easter by wearing pastels and going to brunch, and that's it. Um, but there's more. There's much more, and there's a true meaning of this thing. Easter actually is about a guy named Jesus of Nazareth who lived in the first century in Judea and Israel, who lived and then started teaching and, and, and developed this like massive following of people who were with him until in about 27 AD in Jerusalem, he was uh, accused by the, religious, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, they they. they They were envious of him, and they were angry at him, and they accused him of crimes he didn't commit. Uh, And they brought him, they didn't have the power to execute him, they brought him before the Roman officials, Pontius Pilate and Herod, and those leaders agreed to execute, to crucify Jesus. Crucifixion was one of the worst um, forms of, of public sort of punishment that the Roman Empire had, where they would put someone up on a cross and nail, put nails in their wrists and in their feet, and they would leave them on the cross till they bled out, and all, all the people around could watch it. It was a public execution. Jesus was crucified like that under the hands of the Romans in Jerusalem on a Friday, and he died in a, over the course of about six hours. Um, and then, uh, Sunday morning, something incredible happened, and it is the thing that about 1.8 billion Christians are going to talk about today, and we're going to do it too. Um, And it is recorded by the gospel writer Luke, Luke chapter 24. Let me read to you what happens on that Sunday morning. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. So some women go to the tomb of Jesus first thing in the morning to put spices on his body as a kind of a a smell and as a kind of a way of preparing. Uh, taking care of bodies. They put these spices on the body. They go there and they find out he's not there. He's gone. He was dead. He was put in that tomb. They go there and he's gone. And they see these, what describes as two men in dazzling apparel. That's not like, they're not like some fabulous outfit or something. This is 
angels, uh, as described in another, another writer will say they're angels. And Luke is um, a careful, he's a doctor who records all this for us and wrote it down. He's not the only one. He's interviewing witnesses who were there and, what, okay, what happened, who was there, that kind of thing. And he wrote that down for us. But there are other writers, Matthew, Mark, um, and John, who also were either eyewitnesses or interviewed eyewitnesses about what had happened. And so there's a lot of information there especially for something so long ago in the ancient world, there's actually quite a lot of information around this event. Far more um, uh, witnesses and, and, and people writing accounts of it than you would find of, of anything in the ancient world. And so um, there's, there's a lot there about, about the resurrection, that Jesus was dead and then he came back to life. Now, as soon as I tell you that Jesus was dead and he came back to life, you want to throw the flag, right? And, and I get that because science, duh, well, here's what we know, dead people stay dead. We know this, everybody knows this, and in Jesus' day, they thought that too. In fact, just on Twitter this week, on Friday, on Good Friday, I, I saw someone tweet, and it got retweeted a million times, or whatever, like someone tweeted, um, uh, just a reminder, dead people do not come back to life. And, was, and this woman who tweeted this was really wanted everyone to know that on Good Friday, um, that, that that just doesn't happen. And what's weird is like, What's interesting is, yeah, that's what people thought back then too. Like we have science and we know better, but they knew that too. They know that dead people stay dead. They know that people don't come back to life. And so it was a a, a powerful thing. But I think um, there are reasons to dig in deeper on this. There are reasons to believe that it is actually true that the resurrection of Jesus really really did did happen. Christianity explodes over the next couple millennia, or next couple century, rather, um, not because Jesus was a good teacher and people just loved the golden rule and they loved things that he said. It explodes because he was dead and then he was alive again, and people were like, what just happened? This is God in the flesh. And it exploded because people believed, okay, not only did Jesus die and come back from the dead, but that means there is life after death. That means when I die, something different is going to happen. And that has been a profound, life-changing thing. And you see this in the early church. Um, One of the early followers of Jesus was a guy named Paul. Paul originally was very hostile towards the Jesus followers and rounded them up and threw them in prison, had people killed. Uh, he, was, he was not all about it. He was a skeptic like, like many of us tend to be. He was a skeptic about the whole Jesus story, the resurrection, all of that. And then God got a hold of him and his life changed and he became a follower of Jesus. And he relays to a church, he tells them about the resurrection. He wasn't there that day, but he relays to them, here's what, here's what happened. And I want to read it to you. It's in a letter that he writes to the church in Corinth. We are going to study that letter starting next Sunday for most of the rest of the year. The letter 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul, and, but, but today I just want to go to the end of that letter, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and look at how he describes the resurrection. Uh, li- li- listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved, if you hold fast. Uh, can, can you make the slide go? It's not going. Or I will read it out of this paper book here, which paper never fails. Technology will fail you, but paper will be with you like Jesus, all at your side. Um, uh, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, and there it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, uh, uh, he appeared also to me. So uh, Paul says, and he's not giving you any interpretation here. He's just laying out the facts. Hey, guys, this is the heart of the thing. This is what happened. Jesus lived, he died, and then he came back from the dead. And then, I mean, if you want to really substantiate your, your claim that Jesus came back from the dead, you name names, and that's what Paul does. He names names. He's like, this guy saw it. This person was there. These people saw it. 500 people at one time. He even says... Uh, a lot of them are still alive. I mean, they're not in our day, but in, G- in Paul's day, he's like, a lot of these people are still alive. Some of them are not, but a lot of them are still alive. What is Paul saying? He's basically like, if you don't believe me, go ask them. There are people alive who saw Jesus die and come back from the dead. And, and Paul says, this is first importance. This is the heart of, of the whole thing. These are the facts. Now, I'm not going to dive into the historicity of all of that, of the, the, the you know, sort of the classic evidence of the resurrection. Many writers and many people over the years have done really good work on that, and I've got into some of that before. But I, I really believe there's a lot of solid evidence for this. Um, there's the, the unprecedented growth of the, of the Jesus movement. All of it hinges on uh, Jesus dying and coming back from the dead. So that's the facts Paul lays out. This is what happened. And then he gets in and tells us a little bit about what it means and why it matters. And this is where I think it, it, it overlaps with our lives today. Um, listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Because the people in Corinth are like us. They're sitting there going, yeah, people don't come back from the dead. That didn't happen. That doesn't happen. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. This is, this is of first importance. This is the foundational thing. I'm telling you, he died and he came back from the dead. And you're sitting there going, that doesn't happen, Paul. People don't come back from the dead. They're very much like us, right? It's not hard to imagine a group of people in the ancient world being like, no, this didn't really happen or this doesn't happen. And then he goes on. Listen to what he says. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Look at the argument Paul lays out here. He's basically saying, look, if Jesus didn't come back from the dead and there's no such thing as the resurrection of dead and the people who die in Christ are just going to be dead and it doesn't matter, then all of this is a big waste of time. Your faith is futile, he says. It's it's in vain, he says. The preaching is in vain. What I'm doing to you right now, it's in vain. It's a waste of time. The singing, the words, it's, it's a waste of time. The prayers, it's a waste of time. The giving, the generosity, the serving, all of that. It doesn't matter, Paul says, if... There is no resurrection of the dead. It, it, it basically becomes a social club. It becomes, oh, here's some people that get together and talk about nice things. Paul's not having that. He's like, no, the, the thing that this all hinges on, the thing that really matters is that uh, is, is the resurrection. If 
there is no resurrection, our faith is in vain. Or another way of saying that is, if there is no resurrection, then none of this is worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the money. It's not worth the, the energy. Um, none of this is worth it. You and I hope that there's more to life than just this. Because this is disappointing at, at times, right, and hard. We hope that there's more. We hope that there's a future. We hope that when we die, there's something next. We hope that there's a, a resurrection. We hope that there's a paradise. We hope that there's an opportunity to be reunited with the loved ones that we've lost over the past year and years. But if Jesus doesn't come back from the dead, and Paul says all of that hope is basically pointless. There's no point in believing in that. Now, you may be very cynical, because a lot of us are. And you might sit here right now and go, exactly, Chris, exactly. Without the resurrection, there is no hope, and I don't think there's a resurrection. Therefore, there is no hope. Chris, you just need to face the cold, brutal, hard reality of life that we're all going to die, and it doesn't matter what you believe, and, and that belief may make you feel better, but that's just the truth. We know science. We know the truth. We're all just going to die, and, and, that, and that's just it. There's nothing after death. And if you're cynical in that way, or skeptical, man, I get you. I feel you. You are my people. Because my family's from England, and English people are a, are a little bit on the cynical edge of life, I think. It's very much um, very stoic, very emotionless, like very, um, you know, just the hard, harsh truth. I don't know if it's like constant rain that kind of wore everybody down over there or something, but it, it's sort of like, it's not the sunny side of life kind of people. It's very like, mm, it's hard, and you just have to have a stip over lip and just put up with it, you know? Um, so, so I get that if you're, if you're cynical about, about all this resurrection stuff. But honestly, for me, over my life, I have wrestled with period of faith and periods of doubt. Even as a pastor, I'm telling you that. Like, I have had my moments where, man, am I, am I in on this? Do I believe this? Because i got to teach it. And, you know, where am I at with this? And does it matter? And I've wrestled with those things in my own life. And I, and I keep coming back to this resurrection that we read about today. Um, because I, I think it is the better worldview. It's the better way to, to see the world. Um, I think it's true. I think it actually happened. But it also has the benefit of being um, better for my life. To live as if it is true has helped me navigate pain and death in my own life and in the, in the life of around me. Because the alternative is, if nothing about the gospel is true, if, if this Jesus thing is, is all myth and fairy tale, the alternative then becomes something like, life sucks and then you die. That's it. It's a bumper sticker. It's a t-shirt. It's a worldview. It's a, it's a philosophy of life. That's it. That's what you got. So good luck. Make some meaning of the small, short, miserable existence that you have. Um, and, and, and good luck getting some meaning out of that. And I choose to believe a better story than that one. I choose to believe that God is real, that Jesus is real, that he came back from the dead. Now, can I prove it to you? Not empirically, not like under a microscope in a lab. I can't prove to you anything in history. I can't prove to you Alexander the Great lived. I think he did, though. Some people wrote about it, and it seems to be accurate. I can't prove it to you, but I believe it's true, and that belief is life-changing. Not just for me, but for millions and billions of Christians throughout history. Paul writes about it again, verse 20, going further down that chapter. He says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's, he, 
Not, not that he's the only one who's been raised from the dead, but he's the first one. There are more coming. For as, as by, a, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. He points all the way back to Adam, the first, the first man, right? Adam and Eve. And he says, just like they blew it and death came to all of us, they unraveled the sweater, Christ has come and put it all back together again. This is what, what Adam ruins and wrecked, Christ has healed and, and put back together. Now, you may be, again, you may be skeptical about that, um, and, and I understand that. And in some ways, it doesn't necessarily matter. Like, if you're skeptical about Jesus coming back from the dead, well, to you, Jesus is somebody who lived a long time ago in another culture, maybe, and that's fine. What do I care about that historic story? But I want to talk about you and your life right now. Because I think this story actually matters to your life. Uh, not, to, not just about some ancient Jewish teacher about you. Here's the truth about you. Uh, you will die. And we don't spend a lot of time considering it. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it. When people die in our culture, we whisper it like, like we're not even allowed to say it out loud. But it's definitely happening for you. And it's happening for me. It, it, that day is coming. And shouldn't we invest some energy, time, money, whatever? Shouldn't we invest something in, in that moment? Thinking about what's next and to be prepared for that moment? Stephen Covey famously wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, and, and habit number two out of that book is begin with the end in mind. And that's a great idea. That is great advice. Begin with the end in mind. Whatever vision you have for something off in the future, think of that and then use your vision of that to drive your present. So our vision of the future is not just about the future, it's about now. So if I have a vision of the future to be financially stable, it changes how I budget and spend my money today. If I have a vision to have a certain relationship with my sons, it changes how I spend my time with them today. If I have a vision to be in certain shape and weigh a certain amount or to be able to run a marathon or something like that, it changes how I eat and how I exercise today our vision of the future shapes our current reality and while that is true of finances and food and and relationships it's also true of just our lives where do you think all of this is going yes we'll die but what does that mean what happens then is there anything after that where do you think it's going because where you think it's going matters in how you live your life today and we need to get reflective on that. We would all love to believe that our life will end peacefully, in bed, surrounded by people we love, with no pain, and, and it's like the candle's just blown out and then we're gone. It typically doesn't go that way. So we need to think about, this could be any day, this could be next week, this could be 40 years from now. We need to think about Hey, am, am I prepared for whatever day that is? Am I, am I ready? What, it, what was it worth how I spent my money, my time, my energy? Is it worth it the way, I've, the way I've lived my life? What really matters when you're facing the end like that? I'm a bit of a military history fan. I like to read it, podcasts, all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I, was, I was thinking about the, uh, a particular battle in history um, so, in American military history, does anybody know the, 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 
the deadliest day in American history, the, the day the most Americans died in a single day. Does anyone know what battle that was? Just shout out if you, if you know. Gettysburg, Antietam, any others? I'm surprised, you think D-Day is one we often think of? Um, Antietam is correct. Uh, uh, September 17th, 1862, in 12 hours, just up in Maryland, uh, 3,600 plus men died in a very short period. Largest single day loss of life in American military history. But there are several other countries that have had much worse. In July of 1916, the British and the Germans were facing off on the Western Front of World War I in trenches in France and Belgium. And there's a battle that took place there in July called the Battle of the Somme. And the Battle of the Somme in English history is like Antietam would be for our history or September 11th or something, some, some huge moment. The Battle of the Somme was that moment in England. Um, the, the, the soldiers, if you know about World War I, they, they, they're in trenches and, and they're, they're, um, they're, they're living there weeks, months at a time. And the trenches are yards apart to, you know, very, pretty far apart. Um, and there's an area between the trenches, so they, they stay in the trenches and they shoot at each other and they just kind of stay there. It's kind of a stalemate. And there's this big open area in between the two trenches. You know what that area is called? No man's land, right? No man's land. And they call it that because if you go up there, you will be shot and you will die. So no man goes up there. They would sneak up there at night. They would set up barbed wire. So there's like barbed wire and just you know, sort of traps. And it's very difficult to get through that area to the enemy on the other side in the trenches. Unless in the first Wonder Woman movie, if you were Wonder Woman, you can run right across it. But to be fair, she had those things on her hand to block bullets. They did not have those in World War I, so... Anyway, so she did it, but you don't go into no man's land because you're going to die. Well, the British decided in the Battle of the Somme that they would take artillery and they would blow up and just launch all these bombs at um, no man's land and at the German trenches. And when you get artillery fire, when you get bombed by that for hours and hours and hours and days on end, um, it's terrifying, and, and soldiers would kind of go like this. So one common reaction soldiers had to being bombed by artillery was to fall asleep. You can imagine being bombed and you fall asleep, but you do that because you go so inside yourself, you've got nothing left to do except shut down. So the British believed that if they bombed the Germans enough, it would break up the barbed wire so that the troops could get across, and it would scare the Germans so badly that they'd be shocked and they wouldn't be able to fight. So in, uh, in early July, uh, the bombing went on, and then it became the moment, the day, that the British, the plan was that they all line up in the trench, and if, if you've seen a movie like 1917, you've seen this, my wife makes fun of me because I don't cry in movies, but I do cry in war movies. I don't know why. They just get me, the, the, the drama, the heroism of it. So everyone lines up in a trench on the British side. They've been bombing the Germans for days. They've been bombing the no man's land. And they all go up over the trench and run at the Germans. And the plan was we're going to run over there. They're going to be so shocked. We're going to shoot them. We're going to take their trench. Um, it didn't work. The, the barbed wire that they were trying to blow up didn't really get blown up by all those bombs. So when the, when the British soldiers got out there in this big long line, right, they came to the barbed wire, and the barbed wire was only broken in a few places, so all the soldiers had to come down to one little spot and go through one little spot to get through the barbed wire. Well, the Germans were ready for that, and as soon as the soldiers came to that one spot, the Germans just pointed their guns there and shot everybody who came through that spot. So one wave went over and everybody dies. Another wave goes over and everybody dies. Another wave goes over and everybody dies. And they didn't stop. 
They didn't think, oh, this isn't working, let's quit. 57,000 that day, casualties. So here's what I'm wondering. If you're a soldier in, let's say, the fifth wave, and you're standing there in the trench, what do you think about right before they blow the whistle and tell you it's your turn to go? The four waves that went before you, those, those folks are all gone. And you've, you've seen it. You know this isn't going to end well. You're about two minutes from your death. And you know it. Here's my question. What matters to you right then? Does it matter what kind of car you owned? Does it matter what your job was back in England? I think the only thing that matters, there's basically three things that you would think about in that moment. Number one, you'd think about your family. If you have a wife, uh, maybe a son or a daughter, your dog, you might think about your mom who wrote you a letter and how sad she's going to be that you're gone. You'll think about those people. My guess is you'll also think about, number two, the person next to you, your buddy that you've been stuck in the trench with. You guys have gone through hell together and you will have a bond unlike any on earth because you've done that and you'll think about them. J.R. Tolkien was there, and it's believed that what he experienced in that battle um, and what he experienced in, in, in the war uh, shaped his thoughts about Mordor in Lord of the Rings and, like, what a hellscape that is. So you'll think about the people, your family that you love. You'll think about your friend next to you, your buddy, that you're fighting with him and for him as well. And then I think the last thing you'd think about before you go over that wall is God because you're pretty sure you're about to meet him. If there's a God, I'm, I'm going to meet him in a minute, in two minutes. And even if you're an atheist or whatever your worldview, your philosophy is, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about, this is all going to be over. And there's something about that moment that clarifies what's worth it. And although there's three things you might think about, really those three things are one thing. Really what you're thinking about in that moment is Relationships. Where am I with my family? Where am I with my friends? And where am I with God? That's the only thing that really matters. And at that moment, I think the resurrection of Jesus matters. Because if there is no resurrection of Jesus, if you don't come back from the dead, here's what happens. You go over that wall, you die, and that's the it. It's the end. It's pointless. It meant nothing. Your life was hard, brutal, and short. And there's no hope after that. But if there's a resurrection of Jesus, then there's something, there's something more. There's something that comes after that. There's eternity at stake. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then we can be resurrected too. We have hope for this life if the resurrection is true. We have hope that our pain is not in vain, that our failures are not final. We have hope that our suffering actually has a purpose. We have hope that our future can be better than our past. We have hope that there's a reunion coming with the people that have gone before us that we love. We have hope because we are known and loved by our creator and we have the good news of heaven and eternity. We have these things because of the resurrection and I think that's so needed right now. What I've observed and I don't know what you've observed as you look at people's reaction to a pandemic over the past year. What I have seen, maybe my top observation of all of this, is that people are really afraid to die. We're really afraid to die. It, it is the trump card that you can play to say, like, but you're going to die. And it's like, okay, anything but that. Which is understandable, but also a little weird. Like, because we're definitely going to die at some point, right? 
But people are so afraid, and we're, we're living in fear. We're living with fear. We're, oh, no, you know, we've, we've been basically told the air you breathe is poisonous. You're going to kill people. And it's like, I don't want to do that. And I get that. But um, I, I get that, you know, we don't want the ride to end, and they're going to tell us to get off. I don't want to die either. But as a follower of Jesus, I can't hold on to life so tightly. Like, I, I have to be, of all, of all the people, followers of Jesus should be the people who go, yeah, I don't want to die either, but I will, and I'm, and I'm ready for that day whenever that day comes because I'm in a relationship with God. And I know that that day is just, is not a period at the end of the sentence. It's more like a comma, and there's more coming, coming after that. Um, I, I, I think we need to recognize that and recognize that our relationships are what matter. Um, we, are, we are so much like those soldiers, except they knew they were going to die, and we sort of act like we, we aren't. But like them, the things that really matter at the end of the day are your family, your friends, and your relationship with God. We'll talk about family and friends um, in this next series that we're going to get into as a church. We'll talk about some of those relationships. But I just want to talk about the God piece. Um, one of the people in the regret survey, they asked this 90-year-old woman, and they asked her, do you wish you had accomplished more? And she said, no, I wish I had loved more. Because relationships are, are key. So I want to kind of finish with this and ask you, where are you with God in your relationship with him? Do you know him? Do you follow him? This is actually what we talk about every week at this church. Not the resurrection every week, but we talk about getting right with God and being in relationship with him and following him. And we're, we're going to go into the book that this comes from, 1 Corinthians. We're going to study that and, and, and walk through that. And um, I think there's a lot there for us. Um, and, and it helps us to be ready for whenever, whatever is coming. Um, I have a friend that I met years ago. He's about 10 or more years older than me. And uh, he's a pastor in Artesia, California. His name's Juno. And Juno is a really encouraging guy. In fact, I think Juno prays for me more than anybody on earth. He will send me a text just about every day, and it's very specific. Lord, I pray for Chris and for Abby and for his boys, and, and he'll, he'll say some things just about every day. Juno prays for me. And he's a pastor. Uh, he's a pastor at a church, and his wife, Bonnie, died 11 years ago. And I know he's preaching about the resurrection today, as I am, and I texted him last night. I said, man, have, I hope Easter's great. You know, have a great Easter. And he said, and then he said this to me. He said, Easter took on a whole new meaning since Bonnie's promotion. I'm doing my best to get my tears out tonight. God is good. Your first to his wife's death 11 years ago is her promotion. And I said, man, I can't believe it's been 11 years. And, and he says, I know. While there are still tears at times, I honestly can say, the Lord is good, and it is well with my soul. And I thought, that's, that's it. My hope and prayer for us is that we can say that, and then we can know that. So when we lose people close to us or when we're facing it ourselves, we can go, because of the resurrection, because of Easter, the Lord is good, and it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. And God, my guess is that for a lot of people, they walk in here today, it is not well with their soul. 
God, would you go to work on us and heal us and help us cling to the hope of the resurrection? And and God, may it change us from the inside out. God, I, I thank you for it. I thank you for defeating the grave, that there's no grave that can hold you, but that, that you, um, you did that and, and you showed us the way, that there's a future and a hope for us. God, I, I cling to that, not because it's a better story and that it makes sense of life, but I, I, I believe it's true and, and it, is, it is the reality of, of human existence. And so I, I, I pray that we, we all um, walk out of here with conviction about that today. And we are able to celebrate that, that our future has been changed because of what you did in our past. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.